So we are continuing in our good journey, and if you were here last week, you may remember that this month we're taking a look at another component of the good journey, and that being our journey in other people's shoes, um, our attempt to understand uh, the lives of others and how we can walk with them and even as much as walk in their shoes to discover um, how we can be brothers and sisters to those who are both near and far. So our scripture this morning in that theme is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. And I want to do something very un-Presbyterian this morning. I'm going to ask you to reach over and actually pull out the Bible in front of you in the pew rack. I know, who would have thought Presbyterians would read the Bible in church? But let's just give that a try. And you'll find this on page 197 at the back of your Bibles. There's actually two 197s, one in the front, one in the back. So look for the one in the back, and you will find the Scripture text right there at the big number two. Now before I read them, I want to just say that these words are a part of a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. Paul is writing this letter from prison. He has been to Philippi. He's had a hand at starting the community. He loves these people. They love him. But Paul is writing this letter largely because there's trouble in River City. Paul is concerned about his friends in Philippi. It is a church that's beginning to divide. They are not agreeing on things. We are not quite sure exactly what the problem was, but they were breaking apart. They were taking sides, not unlike what we experience in our culture today, sharp divides over issues and parties, churches splitting. Specifically, we do know that there was a conflict between two women in the church, Priscilla Prissa and Aquila, and we also know that there were those who were trying to introduce old practices of Judaism into the life of the congregation, and it could very well be that they were beginning actually to split over the apostleship of Paul himself. And so in the attempt to address this crisis in the church, Paul, in the second chapter of his letter to the Philippians, writes these words. If then there is any encouragement, and I have them up on the screen too, so if you can't find a Bible, you can read them on the screen. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to stop there for a second and just note what Paul is saying. He is, again, addressing this splintered church, and he's telling them to, of course, be of the same mind. But not just any mind, not just any mind of any particular person in the church, not even in his own mind. Paul is saying that they need to take on and share the mind of Christ. And then Paul does something very interesting. He recites for them a song. Verses 6 through 11, many believe, are actually the words to a hymn, a hymn of the early church. It's why it looks different in the Bible that you're reading. Paul switches from the prose of his letter 
to the meter of a poem. Verses 6 through 11 are in verse. Paul is likely quoting a hymn. It's like he's starting to sing. He recites this hymn as if to say, remember the old song that we used to sing when we were together? Remember the words of that old song? And then Paul goes on to recite them. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, there's nothing like an old song. Old songs are the ones that stick with you. I was at the bookstore the other day, and they had this collection of vinyl records. They've been making a comeback over the last few years. I'm flipping through these vinyl albums, and I remember back to the days when I'd ride my bike over to the record store and spend hours flipping through vinyl, and then picking one and riding it all the way home, and then putting it on the turntable and listening to it over and over and over and over again. It was one of those kids that would listen to my new album over to the point where I got sick of it after the first week. Deep Purple, The Rolling Stones, Jethro Tull, Fleetwood Mac, Elton John, The Eagles, U2. These songs etched themselves into my brain, and I couldn't forget them. When one comes on the radio now, I begin to sing and know every single word. I know every chord, for goodness sakes. Works that way with Christian hymns and songs, right? Fairest Lord Jesus, now thank we all our God. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee in the garden. You are my king, pass it on. Here I am, Lord. You, you learn these songs when you're young and you can't get them out of your head. How about TV theme songs? Come listen to a story about a man named Jed. Poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. Gilligan's Island, the three-hour tour. Friends, I'll be there for you. A horse is a horse, of course. Of course, I date myself. But these songs emblaze themselves in our psyche. I used to listen incessantly to Don McLean's American Pie, where I got to knowing the whole eight-minute song, one of the longest songs you'll hear on the radio. I loved that song until I made the fatal mistake in my only attempt at karaoke. I picked American Pie to sing. <laughs> it's the longest eight minutes of my life and the longest eight minutes of every person in that room that night. I digress. So Paul... In his effort to bring the Philippians together into the mind of Christ, reminds them of that golden oldie who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul, in his effort to bring the Philippians together, tells them to be in the same mind that was in Christ Jesus and then sings them this golden oldie, this golden oldie that tells the story of Christ. And the story of the Christ is the story of humility, that though he was in the form of God, 
emptied himself and was born in human likeness, and being born in human likeness, humbled himself even further and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Paul sings this song and invites the Philippians to sing along with him because it's a song he wants etched, etched in their minds. It's a song he doesn't want ever to leave their heads. The mind of Christ, emptied, humbled, obedient. This is the life of following Jesus. A life of humbling oneself to the condition of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Sam Rayburn served as Speaker of the House of Representatives in the United States Congress for 17 years in the middle of the 20th century. As Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn wielded incredible power and prestige. He was third in line of succession to the presidency. One day he found out that the teenage daughter of a news reporter had tragically died. Early the next morning, Sam Rayburn knocked on the door of the house of the reporter. When the door opened, Rayburn asked if there was anything he could do. The reporter, shocked to see the Speaker of the House standing on his doorstep, stammered and replied, uh, No, Mr. Speaker, I, I think there's nothing you can do. We're making arrangements right now. Well, have you made your coffee this morning? No, actually we haven't, said the grieving man. Well, the Speaker of the House replied, I can at least make your coffee. As he watched this powerful man go to his kitchen and make him coffee, the reporter suddenly remembered something. Mr. Speaker, I, I remember the calendar for today. You were supposed to have breakfast at the White House with the president. Well, I was, but I called the president and told him I had a friend who was in trouble and I couldn't come. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let the same mind be in you, which gives no thought to position. You know, we think a lot about position. What is your position, we ask? What is your position in the company? What is your position on the board? What is your position out in the field? What is your position on this issue? What's your position on that issue? And we are protective of our positions, and our positions define us in contrast to other people and their positions. I'm sure Prissa and Aquila in that Philippi church had their positions. They had made up their minds. What a dangerous thing, a made-up mind. Paul says that the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who gave up his position, who did not count equality with God as something to be held on to. Could you give up your position I'm not saying you have to change everything of what you think, but could you set aside your position so that you could humble yourself to the station and life of someone else? 
Some of you remember the crisis that took place 50 years or so ago when the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania began a meltdown and threatened the population of the Middle Eastern United States. I was a college student in Pennsylvania at the time and the world was on pins and needles as an evacuation was begun while scientists tried desperately to intervene and avert a disaster. A hydrogen bubble had formed in the core of the reactor which heightened the threat of explosion and destruction. There were hours when people didn't know what was going to happen. And then came the solution, finally, and the core began to be cooled, but, but no one could quite believe that they weren't still in danger. Anxiety abounded, but then from the heights of his position in Washington, from the halls of power and prestige came the President of the United States and into a volatile and potentially deadly arena, a place from which people were fleeing the leader of the free world. President Carter flew to Harrisburg, motorcaded to the island, walked into the nuclear reactor to prove that the air was clear. I remember that time, and I remember when President Carter made his journey to that island. I remember the streets being lined with people as they watched him drive by, and applause and tears and salutes. And I remember people saying how much it mattered to them that in the crisis of their lives, when danger was at its height, when that the leader of the free world had come from his position to be with them, to take on their condition, to step into their shoes. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father Gregory Boyle, who will be with us at the end of the month, calls the cross the beams of love. In his work with gang members in East Los Angeles, he steps from the protection of his cloister onto the streets of urban warfare and seeks to be kin with those who have never known kin. The journey into someone else's shoes in humility regarding others as better than oneself, looking not to his own interests, but to the interest of others. Says Boyle, we simply need to change the lurking suspicion that some lives matter less than others. We are put on earth for a little space that we might learn to bear the beams of love. Turns out, he continues, that this is what we all have in common we're just trying to learn how to bear those beams of love. Just trying to learn how to bear those beams of love. Bear those beams. Sounds like the beginning of a good song. It's like the mother I once knew, a single mother, whose one and only child whom she had adopted had turned against her. He was a troubled boy, and he had rebelled and had turned against her. She had only adopted him, fed him, cared for him, taught him, clothed him, raised him. But he had threatened her and told her that he wished she was dead. So at age 18, she sent him away and changed the locks on her doors. He wishes me dead, 
well, he's dead to me, she said. And her friends pretty much agreed she had to protect herself. It was, at the moment, maybe the right position to take. But then the phone call came from prison. He's got no one, they said. Could you come, they asked. You know, Pastor, I am in the right. No one would blame me for staying away. But three days later, down from her mountaintop, she came. And through six locked doors, she made her way through the prison walls to the visiting room and sat before the boy who wished her dead. And now had no other. Bearing the beams of love. A song hard to get out of your head. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Jesus.